You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, we are, uh, if you've been with us over the past couple months, we're at the end of the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the the churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And uh, it has been great. It's been a doozy. And I, I have, uh, you wanted to kind of get my head around the, the whole of it this week. And so as I've been prepping, I kind of had on like my Bible app just playing the, uh, the seven letters. I just wanted to see what I'm missing. Because, you know, sometimes when you're in the, the trees, you can miss the forest. And so I wanted to step back and kind of listen to the whole and kind of get a sense of uh, the things. And as I was doing that, uh, a couple things I felt like the Lord gave me that came across uh, loudly as I'm listening to and considering what Jesus is doing and saying and what uh, to the churches and how we ought to feel about all of that. Here's one of the the things that I sensed listening back. Uh, This stuff is serious, y'all, right? Like if if you've been with us for a couple months, you know that's true. Like we're not, this isn't just like cute letters like to my BFF. This is, these are serious issues. Like he's getting it at, at the heart of like everything that matters. Like what you do and what you love and how you endure and what your sexual ethic is like and what your doctrine is like and who you roll with and what you think about, all of these things, they all matter. Like eternally, they matter. The the stakes are like very, very high. Like we get some of the biggest words, the biggest rewards that you could think of show up in these letters. Jesus is looking at his people and he's saying, hey, the one who overcomes this, he says this today, is gonna sit on my throne with me like I sat with my father on his throne. You're gonna reign forever with me, right? These are the types of things he's saying. You will never taste the second death. You can't get bigger than this. The rewards are just so high. The consequences though, the consequences are so high. Jesus is looking at his people and he's saying, if you don't repent, I'm gonna remove your lampstand, which means the lights are going off at your church. You're not gonna be a church anymore. Today, we get the famous, I'm gonna spew you out of my mouth, right? I mean, these are words, y'all. This is heavy stuff. And so whatever you think Christianity is, at a minimum, you should feel this at the end of these letters. This isn't a game. Whatever it is, it's not a game. Right? This is real stuff. We're playing with live ammo, right? This is serious business, yeah? But here's the other thing that came across as I'm listening to it. I, I hope you get a sense of this too. Jesus is for us, y'all. Yeah? You gotta work with me today. Jesus is, is for us. When I'm reading these letters, that's just screaming off, off the page. Please don't forget, these are not John's letters to the churches. These are Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ looked at these churches and felt a thing and thought a thing and communicated a thing. He's involved. He didn't just ascend and go float up on a cloud and just wait for us to show up when we die. That's not what he's doing. He's involved. He sees these churches. He sees this church. He's thinking about us and he's pulling for us. He wants us to win, y'all. Isn't that good news? Jesus wants you to win and, and, and he's saying everything he needs to to draw you into his arms so you can win, so you can run from sin and run to him. He wants that for you. He's so for us. Now, I believe that with all my heart, but it's easy to miss, right? Because these letters have some teeth to them. And when, when, the, when, when you get hard words, it's hard to feel the love sometimes, right? It's like, 
does he really, I mean, with this, this, this letter today, he's gonna look at people and he's gonna say, you make me want to vomit, right? That's what he's, you make me want to vomit you. That's what he says, right? He's gonna look at a group of people today and he's gonna say, you are wretched and pitiable, and poor, blind, naked. I mean, you don't get harder words than this. So, so I could understand if you have a hard time with this because we're just really sensitive, right? And, 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 and he's doing a lot of hard things and so it can feel like how, how, is this, how is this love? How is this kindness to us? It feels so hard and the, and the answer is really this. Hard words are kind words if they keep you from destroying yourself, yeah? Hard words sometimes need to be said if it means you're not going to die at the end of these words. And, and if, there's, if it gets a little rough in the process, so be it, right? If my kid is in a burning building and I yank him out of it, it doesn't matter that much that I tore his shirt, right? Because his shirt's not what I'm trying to save. I'm trying to save my child. And that's what's happening here. So hard words can be really kind words if they're meant to keep you from destruction. So here's why I just want us to have this heart today. I would love it if you and I could just come to the text and go, Jesus, whatever you want to say to me today, say it. Because I want to live. And I want to live with you. I want to thrive. Yeah? Can we come with that posture today? Amen? Yes? Okay. There you are. There you are. Okay. So what's happening is really simple. Jesus is going to address the presenting issue in this church. He's going to go, hey, you've got some fruit problems. You, you, you've got some bad fruit, right? And he's going to talk about it. But then he's going to go from the fruit to the branches down to the root of the tree. And he's going to go, but there's something wrong at the bottom that's causing this bad fruit, right? He's going to deal with the fruit. Then he's going to go to the root. And then he's going to give us the solution for us. So that's, that's the movement. Fruit, root, solution. That's how we're going to get there today. So... Uh, I, I want you to see it with me. Let's look at this together. Get your Bible out. We're in uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. Start looking at the fruit. He says this. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, just like all these letters, this is a moment where Jesus is making it clear. I just want you to know I'm not some dude writing you a letter, right? I'm the dude that gave you the eyes to see this letter and understand it. I invented you. Just, I just want to make that clear from the jump. He said it's the beginning of God's creation. That doesn't mean he's the first creation. It means he started this thing. This is his idea, right? And, and his opinion is not just his opinion, right? It's not just like, well, Jesus, you have your opinion. I have my opinion. Tomato, tomato, right? He calls himself the faithful and true witness, which means when I open my mouth, I only say the right thing. I only say what is accurate and precise and true. I only tell the truth. So you can be sure this letter is coming from the authority who will shoot you straight. And what does he want to say to them? I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You've heard this preached before, yeah? Anybody been in church long enough to hear a sermon about this or a Bible study about this? Yes. Okay, so that means there's a 700% chance that you've also heard this preached wrong before. That's my guess, because I've heard it preached wrong before. Here's how I've heard it. You tell me if you've heard this too, 
okay? This is how I typically hear this, this text preached. Jesus is saying, pick a team, yo, right? Either play for the saints or play for the sinners, but don't be a fence rider. Don't be, either have your affections be on fire for me or don't care at all about me, but don't be in the middle. Anybody heard it that way? Yeah? Anybody feel weird about that? And guess why? Could it be because he said, it's okay to hate me? That's weird. It's weird for him to look at a group of people and say, you know what? I would rather you despise my existence than you kind of be ambivalent about who I am. That is a weird thing to say. I don't think that's what he's saying. I want to try to demonstrate that uh, through giving you some context about what's happening here. So uh, let's, let's go with some context for a minute. Uh, Laodicea is a city, probably seen it on a map, where, where, and it's situated between two other cities. You have uh, above it, uh, Hierapolis. Uh, and you remember this, the Hierapolis. And, and, and then uh, Colossae down below. Now, Hierapolis is above Laodicea, and it's a really interesting place. It's got some, a crazy geological kind of phenomenon happening up there. There's this hot spring that's happening in Hierapolis, just miles north of Laodicea. And, and what it does is it, uh, it produces all this like super mineral rich water that sort of cascades down the hillsides uh, over there in, in Hierapolis. And it, it, it's, it turns everything into like this white travertine. It looks like snow capped. I was there a few months ago. We got a picture. I, I took that picture. That's what it looks like. It was 90 degrees that day. And that's what it looks like, because that's not snow. That is all that mineral deposit water, those pools. And what would happen is uh, folks would flock to Hierapolis because, because of these really bizarre travertine pools that were happening, because it's, it's sort of like this medicinal healing kind of water, mineral rich. If you were sick, this is the place to, to go to. You would flock there, and, and it would sort of do that reviving work that this kind of water has an effect uh, on you for. You, you've been to like a hot spring before, right? It smells like rotten eggs, really good for you, right? All that. Uh, now, to the south was a, a city called Colossae. Colossae, like for the book of Colossians, right? Uh, and next to Colossae was a mountain, Mount Cadmus. Uh, it's about 8,000 feet high. We've got a picture of that too. Mount Cadmus right here. Uh, 8,000 feet. So it's one of the highest mountains in, in the whole region. And what would happen in this area is uh, these mountains get snow-capped, and then the snow caps melt, and then uh, all of a sudden for like like all the year, you've got this fresh, cool mountain water kind of rushing down into the surrounding villages and cities. So like at any point, you're, you're hot, you're fatigued, you're all that. You've got this really refreshing, cool snow-capped melt happening uh, right there uh, in Colossae for you. So, uh, so Hierapolis in the north, hot springs, uh, Colossae in the south, big cold uh, uh, mountain water coming down from you. And, and then right, right in the middle of those two places is Laodicea. And Laodicea didn't have any of those things, right? It, it was not close enough to either of those to benefit from it. It was next to the Lycus River, which is a joke. It's just a big muddy mess. And so what Laodicea had to do is they had to import their water from all of these places. And they created an aqueduct system. You know aqueducts, right? And they, they actually had, in the first century, indoor plumbing in Laodicea because they had to pipe all their water in. But, but here's the thing, the water was trash because you couldn't bring the, the water from, say, Colossae, that cold, refreshing mountain water. You couldn't bring it in enough time to get that cold, refreshing thing happening in your neck of the woods. It just came bleh. Right? And then it, they had a, another aqueduct that ran to a hot spring about five miles up the road, kind of closer to 
to Hierapolis, but by the time that hot, refreshing, great water came to them, it was also, oh, right? And to boot, it had all these mineral lime deposits in it, so it made it virtually undrinkable for the folks. So, so this, this, they were situated in a place where the water that showed up in their neck of the woods was, wait for it, lukewarm and tepid and gross and undrinkable and unhelpful. And it kind of made you sick to your stomach. So now, now, what is Jesus really saying, given that? Is he saying, serve me passionately, or don't serve me at all? Just don't be in the middle. Is that what he's saying? I don't think so. I think this is what he's saying. You've become useless to the world around you. You've become useless to people you were meant to serve. You have no healing help. You bring no healing help to folks anymore, like those, those hot springs up in Hierapolis. You got none of that. You, you, got no, you bring no refreshment to the table for the spiritually parched and thirsty. You, have no, you bring none of that energy. What, what you bring to the table is lukewarm, tepid, blah, not good for you, unhelpful, useless works. That's what you contribute to the world around you, and it makes me sick. How many of you know when we live lives that help no one around us, it makes our Lord sick? Those are some words, isn't it? It makes him sick. It's not okay. It's not okay. So this was the problem with the, with the Laodicean church, right? They, their works were useless. They contributed nothing to the world around them, but this wasn't their main problem. There's something deeper that Jesus wanted to get to the root of to explain why this external activity was happening, why this fruit was happening. Let me take two minutes on this. Any correction you give or receive in your life that stops at the level of behavior is not Christian correction. I just, I just want to make that clear. It's how the world talks about it. Do change these external things about your life, you'll be better. It's how religion talks about it, but it is not Christianity. That's not how this works because God knows you can scrub that casket all day and at the end of it, it's a shinier casket. It's just a casket. And what you need is change from the heart. So God is always gonna go down to that nerve center. He's never satisfied with just the fruit. He always wants to get down to the root. And that's exactly what he's doing here. Jesus is gonna take us all the way down to the root. He's going, I know your works, but this isn't your main problem. Your main problem is the root. So let's look at the root for a moment. He says in verse 17, for, now remember that word is a big word. That word means whatever I'm about to say is the reason for what I just said. So for, meaning this is the reason you're lukewarm, for you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. The root which is causing this bad fruit in the church was spiritual self-sufficiency. Spiritual self-sufficiency was literally killing this church. 
Now, we need to talk about what that means. We need to give, we need to give some definition to it. But, but first, we need to know some of the context and history that's going to make sense of it. Okay? And, and what we're going to see when we look at Laodicea's history is that this is a place that starts in anything but a posture of self-sufficiency. In fact, they really start at a place of a lot of embarrassment. That's, that's where they start. So let me, let me give you a little history lesson with, uh, with Laodicea. Okay, so it's, uh, it's AD 25. And uh, Laodicea is, um, they are now competing with the surrounding cities to be the host home for essentially the, uh, the new temple to Tiberius Caesar. They want to be the place where they get to build the temple for Caesar. In, in our day, it's like the cities get jazzed when we can host the Olympics. For them, it was like, let me host this temple for Caesar, right? That's what they were doing. And they lost the bid to Smyrna, typical Smyrna, right? Those guys. So they, they lost the bid, and here is what Rome said to them about why they lost the bid. Rome said that they, they didn't get the bid because they lacked the wealth needed to maintain the temple. Hmm. Right? So this is, a, this, is a big, this is a big blow to their pride. Right? This, this hits them just right, right in the gut. And they, and they decide, well, I, we can't stay like this. This is, this is a shameful thing. We, we got to fix the problem. So they do what anyone would do in a pickle, they start breeding sheep, right? That's what you do, right? That's what I do anyways. They start breeding sheep. Uh, black sheep, have they any wool? Uh, yes, sir, <laughs> fruit bags full. They, 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 they start breeding these raven black wool sheep and they become like overnight this virtual like center of this textile industry for this wool that you couldn't get hardly anywhere else, right? So they had this, this black wool, they, they were now like competing in textile simultaneously while that's going. Over here they got another hustle. They, they start uh, developing a medical school that's becoming like region renowned. In fact, a guy comes out of that medical school, his name's Demosthenes, I can't remember his last, it's like Smith or something. Uh, and, and Demosthenes, uh, this guy invents an eye have uh, that they put on their eyes uh, and, and it heals you if you got infections and things like that. It was called Phrygian powder. So this region is now being known not just for textiles, but for, for medical innovation, for technology, that type of thing is on the rise. Here's the third thing that's going on. Laodicea on the map, it's right on this trade route. And what happens on a trade route? Commerce. Commerce happens. Trade happens on a trade route. And so so what Laodicea becomes over time is sort of like the banking capital of the region. They become Hong Kong. They become uh, Wall Street. That, that's where all the money is coming in and out of. So like uh, overnight, these guys look up and, and where they were once just like just an ugly duckling, now they blossomed into like this princess, right? And they're just killing the game all of a sudden. Now watch this. Now it's AD 60. Huge earthquake comes. Shakes up the land destroys all these cities, and Rome swoops in to provide financial aids to their provinces. Every city takes Rome's handout but one. Who is it? It's Laodicea, right? Oh, we, we're good. We, uh, <laughs> I know you burned us last time, but we're good now. We actually got, we're, we're fine, right? We have enough, right? They, they totally, Laodicea, uh, uh, just to totally stuck it to the man. They, 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 are, they are that scrawny kid in freshman year who gets beat up all the time, then he goes away in the summer and he gets jacked and he comes back and he's now the high school QB and he just ghosts all, all the haters, right? That's, that is who Laodicea is 
now, right? It's the ultimate comeback story, right? It's, we've, we did it. We love this story, by the way, don't we? This is like, this is, this is the American dream, right? You, you work hard, you, you try real, and you, you make something of yourself. We love this story. All of our movies are this story. The, Laodicea is, is uh, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman, right? She's walking back into Rome, she's looking all fly, just like, hey, I was in here yesterday, you wouldn't wait on me. Do you work on commission? Big mistake, right? I'm going shopping. That is who Laodicea has become. It's this ultimate comeback story and they love it and everybody loves it and we love it and Jesus looks at that and he goes, that makes me nauseous. Makes me nauseous. Why, though? Really? That, wh- why would you be so, bo- why are you so bothered by this? That, don't, you, don't you want us to work hard? Don't you want us to be people who, who like get out of the muck, who have some hustle in us? Like, don't you want that? From us, Jesus, why is this such a bothersome thing to, to Jesus? And, and the answer is this, and this is the whole sermon. If you haven't heard anything, just hear this. This is, this is everything. Because their success had trained their heart that they don't need anything from anyone. And you can't be a Christian if you don't have need. You cannot be a Christian if you don't have need. That's why the stakes are so high. Christianity, if you, if you were to pour it into a pot and let it boil all day and all the stuff kind of comes off the top of it, at the end of the day, all the, the, the stuff that remains in the bottom of that pot, if you look down there, it's, there's one word floating down there. It's a verb and the verb is receive. That's what this whole thing is. You receiving something. If you want to be saved, You do not give something to God. You get something from God or you don't get him. That's how this thing works. Christianity is at its essence, it's receiving. It's it's admitting verse 17 is true of you and me. It's, It's looking at God and going, I've done an assessment of me and here's what I've come up with. I am wretched and pitiable and and I'm poor and I'm blind and I'm naked and I don't have what it takes and, and I'm coming to you, God, for a handout. That's what it is. And the problem is, rich folk don't take handouts. That's the problem. It is the essence of what's keeping them away because Success has trained their heart that they don't need anything and you cannot be a Christian if you don't need anything. You can't be a Christian. Christianity is receiving. It is need at its core. And this is what the Bible's always taught, by the way. I, I was trying to come up with like a l- list of verses that could make this point and just every verse I turn to is this. But let me just give you one really simple one that's gonna hit the nail on the head. The first sentence of the first sermon in the first book of the New Testament from Jesus, gets at this. He looks at the crowd in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, what? Blessed are you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's getting right to the heart of it right here. Who gets the kingdom of heaven in Jesus' economy? The spiritually poor. The folks who don't have it together and can admit, I don't have it together. That's who gets the kingdom of heaven. Conversely, who doesn't get the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's not the spiritually 
poor, it's the folks who are, we'll just call them spiritually upper middle class, right? The folks who are, I'm good. I'm good. I, I come from good stock. I worked hard. I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm making it in this world. And, uh, and so th- thank you. I'm going to, yeah, I'll run with you and all that. And I'll, I'll be obedient. I'll be moral and all that. But, uh, you know, I don't need, I, I don't need you to give me anything. Those are the people who don't get anything. Those are the people who don't get anything. And that's Jesus' point in Matthew, and that's Jesus' point in Revelation. They don't have a sense of their neediness, and when you don't have need, you can't receive, and if you can't receive, you can't be a Christian. Do you see what the problem is here? Do you see? Spiritual self-sufficiency is the great threat to our relationship with Jesus. It is the great threat. Now, there are, there are a couple ways this plays out in a human heart. Let me, let me try to address both of them real quick. Um, for some of us in the room, some of you hearing this, uh, you have convinced yourself, I really don't need anything spiritually. I'm, I'm good. I, I, you know, I, I think I'm okay. I've got my act together. I, I try hard and I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Now, you, you wouldn't talk like this in your mind. You wouldn't say it like this because uh, you know better. That, this kind of sounds a little arrogant, right? But, but you just get kind of at the core of who you are. You just kind of live out of this place of like, yeah, I, I, I'm here today because uh, this keeps me on Team Christian. And, I, and I'm, I'm doing this thing because this is what we do. This is what my family did before me and I hope my kids will do it after me. And I'll, if I do this long enough, perhaps at the end, uh, Jesus will look at me and he'll say, man, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. If that's what you thought Christianity is, you are woefully mistaken. That's not what this thing is. Even if you wouldn't say it like that, if you're living like that, you've misunderstood Christianity. This is gonna sound weird, but your good works, some of you, your good works might actually be the thing that's keeping you out of the kingdom of God. Your good works. Uh, th- there was a, a quote f- um, from Pastor Tim Keller that I, I read uh, 10 years ago, and it devastated me. And I'm gonna give it to you, uh, and just let it blow up your heart and mind too. He said this, irreligious people, people without religion, repent of nothing. Religious people repent of their sin. But a Christian repents of his righteousness. You feel that? Do you see it? That when, when you hold on to your righteousness, your accomplishments, your achievements, you are actually undermining the very entryway into God's family. You don't get in if you don't have need. And if you hold on to your works, you will not be his. And so for some of you, maybe the most godly thing that you can do today is is simply to repent of your good works and just go, God, I, I need more spiritual bankruptcy than I have, and I'm sorry. Now, now for you, that, that might not be you at all. You might be in this camp. You might feel all of that spiritual poverty. You might be sitting here and just feel like a total train wreck, but the problem is you hate that and despise that. And if only you could get a little bit wealthier, 
then you'd have it settled. In, in fact, you're a mess and you know it and you hate it and it's actually the thing keeping you from coming to God because you do feel like you need to line your pockets a little bit more with some of your goodness, some of your righteousness and so you've been actually avoiding church. You've been avoiding God's people. You've been avoiding talking to God because you just go, I just need, I need to get a little richer before I can show up to the party. It's, otherwise, it's a little embarrassing, right? Because I'm not doing okay. Can I just tell you, that's just the other side of the coin of this. It, it's all a love of your wealth, not his. That's the problem. If you try to get rich before you come to God, you cannot come to God because God only takes poor people. He only takes spiritually bankrupt people. He only takes failures. This is why Christianity is the only religion where this idea could make sense that Jeffrey Dahmer, the serial killer who was arrested for eating people, who then trusted in Jesus while in prison, is now today worshiping King Jesus in heaven along with me one day when I join him. If that idea confuses or offends you, you don't understand Christianity. Heaven is only filled with failures. That's all it's filled with. That's the only people who are there. Are train wrecks, morally bankrupt people that Jesus then redeems and changes them and their heart. But if you come in with your wealth, you can't come in. You can't come in. So Jesus shows us the, the root of our fruitless lives. Are you, are you with me? Are we good? Yes? He shows us the root of our fruitless existence, that we think we have it all. We can't admit that we don't have it all, and, and therefore we can't receive from him. And, and if you're not poured into, you have nothing to pour out. So I can't pour out to a, a world around me with anything helpful because I've got nothing poured into me. So it gets to the root of it. That's, that's what's the issue here. And, and so now we go, well, okay, if we can admit that, what do we do next? And that's exactly what Jesus gives us in the text. In verse 18, he says this, I counsel you in light of that to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness might not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus is saying, you've been looking for those resources in yourself. It's just not in you. It's in me. So come to me. In the Greek, that word me is emphatic. If you were to translate it like exactly literally, you would just italicize it in English, right? What it, what it would read like is this. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire. Come to me. And you can have gold refined by fire. That idea of refinement by fire, it's that, that notion of purity in, in the scriptures. It's what our faith is, is having done to it in First Peter, right? It's being refined by fire. So, so there's real wealth coming from the heart of Jesus to us when we come to him in faith. There's, there's real purity that he offers us. And, and, and buy from me white garments so that you may clothe yourself and, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Nakedness was always a picture of judgment in the Bible. Post-Genesis 3, if you're naked, you're in trouble, right? That's the second takeaway from today. Just file that away, kids. It's a good thing to remember. In, nakedness equals judgment. Conversely, robes of white, that is conveying righteousness. John's going to use it all the time in the book of Revelation to talk about the, the right standing that a person has before God. And, and Jesus is looking at his people and he's going, 
you're naked. You think you're clothed. This is like the, the emperor's new clothes kind of situation. You think you've got it, but you're, you're actually naked, and I actually have what you need. I have righteousness. I can clothe you in my righteousness. You can be re- respectable before God because of what I give you if you'll just come to me and, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Remember, these, these, are, the, these are the salve people, right? These are, the, these are the people who came up with Phrygian powder. They're the eye guys. And, and God is saying, no, I'm the eye guy. You can't, this is really their biggest problem, isn't it? You can't see. You, you ha, you, you're unable to see your need and my beauty. You can't see it. So come to me and I have salve for your eyes. I, I will help you. I will make you see again. That's my job, not your job. It's my job to do that. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. I'm telling you this, guys, because I love you. Remember, there's teeth here, but it's from a heart of love. I'm pulling you from the fire. Your shirt's getting ripped, but I love you. I love you. Jesus supplies all that we need. Now, he could have stopped there at verse nine, 19. He could have stopped there. But if he did, we'd be in trouble. We would, we would not have the full picture of what the gospel is because there is a way to hear all this that misses what the gospel is about. It sounds something like this. Okay, um, okay you're saying what a Christian is is someone who is not relying on myself for the things I need to be right with God. It's, it's a person who's relying on Jesus, who's going to Jesus to get the things that I need to be right before God, to go to heaven to do those things. Okay, so, I, so a Christian is someone who just comes to Jesus and gets those things and then we're good. And that sentence is true. It's, a, it's an almost truth. It's getting you almost all the way there, but it doesn't show the full picture. Uh, it's what I call um, vending machine Christianity, right? Uh, where, where Jesus becomes mostly a dispensary to us of the things that we actually need. Well, I need purity. Jesus says, uh, he's the guy who has it. So I go to Jesus in faith, I get my purity, I'm good. I need heaven, I can't get heaven on my own. So I go to Jesus, he dispenses my heaven. I get, and, and we treat him like a dispenser, like a vending machine. And, and th- th- there's only one problem with this. No one has ever fallen in love with a vending machine. No, you have never stood before a vending machine and it just said, this gigantic box, I love you. I thank you for being just this box. I just like your shape. I like what, nobody does that. If you do that, stop. That's weird, okay? Don't do that. What we do is we go to the vending machine and we go, I want all the stuff you have to, to give me. I want, the, I want the stuff inside you for me. But once I get that from you, I have no need for a vending machine. I'm not going out for coffee with a vending machine. That's not what I'm doing right? Do you see that this is how we get the gospel wrong? Jesus, Jesus doesn't just give us gifts. He is the gift. He doesn't just give us commodities. He is the commodity. He's the punchline of this whole thing. That's why he doesn't stop at verse 19. He goes to verse 20, and verse 20 says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's another emphatic I stand at the door. It's just me this time, guys. It's just me. I'm standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We're gonna dine together. We're gonna have a meal together. If, if all Jesus is is a stuff dispensary, verse 20 makes no sense. Why would I wanna have a meal with you? I've already got heaven from you. Why would I, I've already gotten righteousness. I don't, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is a meal with your Lord. Christianity is you get to feast with the Savior. 
Christianity is you don't just get Jesus' stuff, you get Jesus. And if you got none of Jesus' stuff and just got Jesus, you would have everything. That's the Christian message. That is the gospel. The real gift of the gospel isn't his stuff, it's Jesus. We need intimacy with him, nearness with him, relationship with him, friendship with him. And the church of Laodicea, they just were too upper middle class for it. So they were over. They, they just... They were too full of themselves to want anything to do with Jesus. And they lost their appetite for him. Did you notice verse 20? It says, I stand at the door and knock. Here's a brain buster question for you. Where do you have to be standing if you're asking to come inside? Outside. Did you know that you can be a Christian and have Jesus on the outside of your life? We always use this verse for evangelism. He stands at the door and knocks. He's, he's trying to get people saved. Don't, don't forget, he's writing the church, to the church at Laodicea. This, he's writing to a group of Christians, and he's saying, I am on the outside of your situation. Does that not haunt anybody else? That, that, that right now, there could be some of you here this morning, that you're in this building, but you can't even see that Jesus isn't in your building. You can't even see it. And, and what's worse, when we have this spiritual upper middle class, I'm okay, I don't need anything from anyone, attitude, I'm just gonna hold on to my own works. When we have that attitude in us, it, it makes us not even care that much. We're okay. I just, I'm just thinking this week, I don't even have words to help make us care. I'm just asking the Holy Spirit to make us care about this, care about not caring. Oh, that we would come inside. That he would come inside. That's the, that's the offer, isn't it? He says, I stand at the door and knock. How do we get him in? He tells us, listen, hear me. I'm calling. Anyone who hears my voice, if he opens the door, I'm gonna enter in. I'm gonna come in to you. I'm gonna dine with you. We're gonna have intimacy together. We're gonna have a feast together. That's what he offers us. And, and th this is the beauty of the gospel. When we come to Jesus for all our needs, our righteousness, our purity, our sight, his friendship, his love, his, what happens when that happens is his glory is just put on full display. He, he starts looking great. And, and, and the world gets to see through us and him how desirable this God really is. Uh, four days ago, I'll end with this. Um, it was Thanksgiving four days ago, something like that? Uh, it's 9 p.m. We're finishing up, we're hanging out with friends at the dinner table, and my wife uh, runs in the room, and she, uh, she was just feeding our, our son, Nico, uh, who's five weeks old, and she goes, we, uh, we, we gotta go, we gotta go to the ER. Uh, I said, what? She said, uh, Nico can't breathe, he's not breathing. He's it was like a blockage and, and, and sinus stuff. And, uh, you know, infants, they can't like choose to breathe out of their mouth. It's like just all coming through their nose. He stopped breathing for like five seconds uh, at a time. Was, we didn't know what was going on. We felt helpless. We were like, oh my gosh. And uh, okay, so we get, kind of get our stuff together. Our friends are still at the table with us and, and our friends look at us and, and they go, which is what any friend should do. Okay, you guys just go, get out of here. Uh, we're gonna hold down the four. You remember, we got four other kids at home. And they had their kids there. Uh, but they were like, hey, it doesn't matter. You guys go. Um, we're going to hold down the fort. Uh, we'll take care of your kids. We'll, we'll sort it out. We'll put them down if we need to. Uh, whatever we need to do. You just need to focus on you. And, uh, you know, we're just frazzled. Okay. So we, we go and uh, thank them for it. And, and they did. They um, 
put up all our food. They cleaned our whole kitchen. This was right after Thanksgiving. They uh, put our kids to bed. They, without bags packed or anything, stayed the night at our house with, uh, with their kids, slept upstairs, uh, no change of clothes, no toothbrush, no any of that. Uh, they stayed on call for us all night uh, when we texted uh, updates. They were there 3 a.m., 4 a.m., texting with us, communicating. Now, what if at 9 p.m., my friend made that offer to me and I looked at him and I said, dude, I, I know how to take care of my kids. <laughs> I, they're my kids. I'm, I'm fine, dude, I'm fine. I'm gonna, I'll take Kelly, I'll come home, I'll put my kids down, I'll hold down the fort, she'll sort it out, we'll be on the phone, it's gonna fine. You, you guys get out of here, thanks, but no thanks. If I said that, who becomes the hero of my Thanksgiving story? It's me, I'm the hero because I did it. I took care of my kids. I, I held down the fort. I, I sorted it all out. But that's not what happened. Me and Kelly realized we, we got nothing. We, um, I don't know what to do. You're offering. You clearly seem like you can handle it. Amazing. Thank you. That happens. Who's the hero now? My friend is. Jesus wants to be the hero of your story. That's what this is. And when you hold on to what you've done, you become the hero of your story. When you are that spiritually upper middle class person, even though you wouldn't put it like that with your mouth, but when you live that way from your heart and in your life, you, you are saying to him and to the world, I'm the hero. I'm the hero. And Jesus isn't having it. It makes him sick. Because the best thing for you is for him to get the glory, for us to get the joy, for us to be poured into so that we have something to pour out to a lost and dying world that really needs him. That is the picture that he's trying to create in this church, and that's the picture he's trying to create in our church. Will we be poor so that we could be rich? That's the invitation. Yeah? Let's pray. Father, you sent your son to be poor so that you would make us rich. That's what the text says. But not with money. That, that, that's so small time. To make us rich with righteousness and with your presence. And we give you thanks for that. And we want to be rich like that. Rich in Christ. So God, for anybody in this room who's been holding on to their accomplishments, God, help them. If there's even the slightest prick of a conscience this morning, would you not let Satan snatch up that seed? And God, would you help us to be repenting people who hold on to the one who really does have the wealth? He doesn't just have it and give it to us. He is it for us. We want to dine with you. Will you dine with us? We pray in Jesus' name.